0: Welcome to Dark Poutine, a podcast about Canada's creepier side. My name is Mike Brown, creator and host. With me is my good friend, co-host, and underemployed sound engineer, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. I love you all. No, you don't. I do. Okay. Well, we have a little bit of an apology to make. Uh, Well, I don't know. (laughs) Dear Edmonton listeners, although we stand by our last podcast we hope we did not offend you too badly with what we said about your fine city. We think the flames suck too, just so you know. So anyway, uh, we actually got an email this week. Woo-hoo! Yeah, right? Uh, here's a shout out to Carrie P. from Northeast Arkansas. She sent us a, hel- a hello via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. She said, just wanting to say love with capital l-o-v-e the podcast the halifax explosion episode was amazing i didn't know that much about it and it was very informative keep up the good work lots of exclamation points can't wait to hear the next episode and scott you're the best (laughs) you're so funny she didn't say that hilarity no (laughs) i love you scott Um, narcissist Uh, Thanks so much, Carrie. Uh, We're so grateful that you're listening. We really do want to cover creepy Canadian things that some folks may not know a lot about, even other Canadians, and particularly creepy Canadians, like me. And me. Right. We'll do some cases that uh, people may be more familiar with too, but uh, we'll always add our own twist. So let's get to it. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion, and often a sense of humor, is strongly advised. Your hosts are in no way experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We just want to entertain you with the stories we tell. Put on your toque, grab a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine <laughs> is going to be kind of tough for me Uh, it takes place in my hometown Bridgewater Nova Scotia and the topic of the episode is uh, the Carissa Boudreaux anybody who remembers it will will remember it well anybody who doesn't will remember it after this episode I'm sure Uh, this literally hits very close to home for me uh, as most of the event took place in the neighborhood the actual neighborhood I grew up in so it's, it's a little tough. Bridgewater is a town of just over 8,500 people. Uh, it's a 60-minute drive down the 103 Highway from Nova Scotia's capital city, Halifax. We talked about Halifax in the Halifax Explosion episode. If you're into a more scenic drive along the Atlantic Ocean, take the old Number 3 Highway, also known as the Lighthouse Route. Along the way, you'll pass the iconic Peggy's Cove Lighthouse. You'll pass through the beautiful and idyllic little towns like Chester and Mahone Bay and Lunenburg, a UNESCO site. Look it up. The South Shore of Nova Scotia has a slow and easy pace. It's a wonderful area to relax and catch some sun and surf in the summertime at the many local beaches. I grew up there. It's a fantastic place to grow up, too.
1: I've heard nothing but beautiful things about it.
0: It is great. Among its quaint charm, the South Shore does have some dark and interesting history. I won't get into it all here, but we'll we'll highlight some of it. As you pass Peggy's Cove, for example, there's a stone memorial and small park dedicated to the memory of the 229 souls who perished on September 2nd, 1998. When Swiss Air Flight 111 plunged into the Atlantic Ocean on its way between New York and Geneva, Switzerland, after a fire on board. Yeah, Carol and I were on our honeymoon in uh, in PEI at the time, as I planned to do a podcast on that one day um, yeah it would be a fascinating
1: topic i, I remember that event was, uh, quite well as well
0: yeah i have some some personal stories to share from that but hmm. you will have to listen to our podcast on uh, swiss air flight 111
1: you're making me wait
0: <laughs> yep it's gonna mm. happen uh just out ma- outside my home bay is oak island something else we'll do an episode on uh the same mysterious Oak Island that has drawn treasure hunters since the 1700s and is currently the star of a show called The Curse of Oak Island on the History Network. Have you ever watched it?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a glutton for anything, uh, reality TV-based, especially if it's got something supernatural, superstitious, yeah. uh, anything,
0: anything that— Mysteries a, and stuff. Mysteries, yeah. 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 So, no, I I, I will admit I, I watch it often. Uh, So it's now in season five. I went on the tour last summer. uh, I
1: remember you telling me that. And I
0: recorded it, actually. I recorded Charles Barkhouse on on the tour, but I haven't edited it. And that, I will save for our podcast. Isn't that nice of me? Anyway, it's in the fifth season and uh, the Lagina brothers, um, who are American investors, are currently the ones trying to crack the mystery of Oak Island and uncover her possible treasures with the help of a few longtime treasure hunters and Oak Island experts. It's a pretty interesting show. The first five seasons Carol hated it and said that nothing was happening and it kinda wasn't. I I can I can understand that sentiment. Yeah, but but now stuff has happened in the fifth season you gotta watch anyway. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Aliens. Mm
1: -mm. They found aliens in there. Damn you. Under underground aliens. I told you I didn't
0: want to spoil it. I couldn't keep it in. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Bridgewater, uh, where I'm from, is not known for its crime. Sure, stuff happens there. Stuff happened to me there, but that's for another time. Uh, Bridgewater is the type of place where you get your bike stolen. It gets found by the town police and the thief gets his day in court. And then it's reported in the local newspaper's court report. Serious business, Mike. Serious business. So murder is massive news there. Um, I can only recall a single murder in the town during the time I lived there. In 1991, two years before I moved to Vancouver, I worked at a local coffee shop and convenience store called the Candy Center.
1: Mm.
0: A customer named Joseph Lorando was one of the regulars who would sit for hours, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and chat. He was a nice guy, smaller in stature and very slight. I remember his thick mustache and longer hair on the sides, and he was mostly bald on top. Apparently, he was quite a musician, He had a nickname, but 25 years has gone by and I can't for the life of me remember it.
1: Can we make one, up?
0: No. Okay. This next bit, you probably will regret saying that. Oh, no. One night in 1992, Joseph was stabbed. Do you regret Mm, it yet? uh, Instantly. (laughs) In his car in a darkened trailer park. Uh, I think it's Eisenhower Court is the name of it. Uh, And he died going from trailer to trailer looking for help. He bled out on a resident's steps. Can you imagine going out in the morning and finding some, some person you don't know dead on your steps? I regret my comment even more. Blood everywhere. Uh, his killer was a young man named Charles Wicker. That's Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. Who pled guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter rather than undergo a trial and risk a life sentence. Apparently, Joseph and Charles were smoking a joint in Joseph's car, and according to Charles, Joseph made a homosexual advance on him, and Charles panicked, stabbing Joseph, and then he split. Nice. Mm. I knew Charles Wicker, too, which was interesting. I was in Bridgewater Junior Fire Department when I was young. In fact, I was the deputy chief at one point. Uh, What a mistake. Well, I didn't light fires i i pre- helped to prevent them that's the mistake uh so anyway we used to play ball hockey against other junior fire departments in the area and charles zwicker was in the riverport junior fire department we played against them in a tournament charles in particular stood out for his aggressive play style we were a bit scared of him he was a big sort of like a mm. beefy dude mm. uh, but we could never have predicted his future as a murderer uh, the buzz about that murder rolled through Bridgewater for months, and it was a popular topic of conversation for quite some time. Uh, it wasn't until uh, January 27, 2008, uh, when 12 year old Carissa Boudreaux went missing, that uh, the town had another event like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Carissa's mother, Penny Boudreaux, She and her daughter had an argument in Penny's car in the Sobeys parking lot at the Bridgewater Mall around 5.30 p.m. It's where we used to get people to go in and buy our beer. Mm -hmm. Penny said she went inside to pick up some grocery items and Carissa was gone when she returned 15 minutes later. Penny said she looked around the darkened parking lot and drove around looking for her preteen daughter. Not finding Carissa after a frantic search, she called police around 8.35 p.m. that evening. They searched the parking lot with a canine, but no trace of the girl was found. Carissa had left her cell phone in her mother's car and only had a few dollars in her pocket. She couldn't have gone far. Had Carissa run away, upset with the argument uh, she had with her mother? An unconfirmed but persistent rumor was that the fight was over. Carissa's involvement with an older boy her mother disapproved of, but that was never Hmm. officially came out. But Hmm. people I, I know told me that but i don't i don't know if that's fact that's like i said a rumor mm-hmm. uh, had carissa been taken by somebody her father paul boudreau lived 100 kilometers away further down the south shore in a little town called uh, shelburne he had not seen or heard from carissa since she'd gone missing and he was worried sick so i mean obviously police talked to him
1: yeah, all, it's all.
0: step one is always look at family. Yeah, and have conversations. Maybe she's just there, right? Like maybe she just took off.
1: Yeah, maybe she was just upset over the argument and wanted to go
0: hangout, live with her dad. Hang out with dad, yeah. yep. Uh, no one knew for sure, but the assumption was that Carissa was pissed off at her mother and took off to be with friends. Hmm. Snow began to fall later that night and concern grew as the young girl was not dressed for the weather. Carissa had been wearing pink Crocs, jeans, t-shirt, black hoodie, and a black vest. Extremely light for a Nova Scotia winter night. Carissa was still missing the next morning. Police notified other police agencies in the regions. They also notified the local press. Bridgewater's radio station, CKBW, we used to call it Scaby Radio. Uh, It wasn't good. It's still, well, I don't know. It's, it's not. Scabies or the station? Yeah. It was the only radio station we had to listen to, really. And well, uh, Take what you can get. Yep. I, I learned a lot about country music. Oh. Yep. Some rock and roll. They did Top 42. Yeah. Anyway, CKBW began to uh, broadcast the story of missing Carissa Boudreau along with the description of her and what she was wearing. And although I live on the other coast now here in Vancouver... I found out about the story of uh, Carissa Boudreaux missing from my hometown very quickly. Our many friends on Facebook were posting and reposting about the story. Most of the folks I know back there were parents by the time, and uh, they were horrified at the thought that a child had gone missing in that small town. They wanted to help find Carissa, of course. I personally became obsessed with the story because it was all happening very close to where i was from
1: oh that that yeah, that personal connection will really uh uh, have things stand out for you
0: it absolutely did as we'll find out here Uh, carissa lived in an apartment building on jubilee road about 300 meters from my mom and dad's place Um, i knew the apartment complex well i had frequented it in my darker days Uh, it was at times called little harlem but uh, not because of anything racist or anything like that. The apartment buildings were the, were uh, filled with lower-income families struggling to get by, many of who were receiving monthly welfare checks. So uh, it was more classist than racist. Mm, not, not any better. Yeah. Anyway, so Carissa was missing. On January 29th, two days after she was last seen in the mall parking lot, her mother, Penny Boudreaux, with her boyfriend, Verna McCumber, at her side, comforting her, took part in a press conference hosted by the Bridgewater Police Department. In this audio clip, Penny Boudreaux explains why she and Carissa were out that evening. And then she makes an impassioned plea for Carissa to come home or contact her family. I took her for a drive that day just to try to have a heart-to-heart with her in a place, like in a car. She can't get away and slam her door, which she usually does to me. Our grandparents are looking for you. All of us are. I don't know where you are, but just come home or call or something. Please. All your friends are looking for you. and We're all worried. We just want you home safe. Thank you for coming today. Penny said she and Carissa had argued over typical teenage things, nothing out of the ordinary. At the same time, in Hebville, about a kilometer or so from the apartment that Carissa lived in with Penny and Vernon, volunteers in the Lunenburg County Ground and Search and Rescue were hard at work scouring the area off William Heb Road after someone called in with an ominous tip. I remember William Hebb Road as an isolated dark dirt road off Bridgewater's Pine Street. There were no streetlights. We used to go up there, off in one of the logging roads to drink alcohol and other things that teenagers do. When we were underage, the police rarely came up there and never caught us. The road was so under-traveled that the son of a family who we were close with had committed suicide in his car there, but was not found for some time. The tipster, a local resident driving along, noticed something pink near the road. Remembering that Carissa had been wearing pink Crocs, he pulled over and discovered that it was, in fact, a size 8 pink Croc that he'd seen. Police began to suspect foul play, but held back this evidence from the public. On January 30th, posters with Carissa's face and details regarding her disappearance were put up all over town. The rumors and speculation were already swirling. Maybe Carissa had not run away at all. Was she even still alive? On January 31st, the weather improved. Two police officers took to the air in a Department of Natural Resources helicopter, combing the area near the Bridgewater Mall situated on the banks of the Havre River. As well, they looked at the woods around the town and up and down the 103 highway. There was still no trace of Carissa Boudreaux. On February 1st, police held another press conference with Penny Boudreaux, making more pleas for her daughter or anyone who might know where she is to reach out. Penny said, "'I'm trying not to think the worst,' It's plain and simple, hell, not knowing where your kids are is horrible. Sergeant John Collier of the Bridgewater Police said, We've had some sightings. We have not been able to conclusively say that it was her. Investigators are also probing the possibility of foul play, including interviewing family members and trying to determine when Carissa was last seen by someone outside the immediate family. This has been a criminal investigation almost from day one. That would be standard operating procedure for any police agency where the circumstances are a mystery. We do not have any evidence to point to anything that is criminal at this point. And believe me, we've explored that, but we'll continue to explore down that road. The family has been very cooperative with us in anything we've asked. And we have no reason to believe at this point that there's any reason to disbelieve what mom has told us, he said. Two weeks prior to Carissa's disappearance, there had also been an attempt at child abduction in Liverpool, just a 20-minute drive away. Perhaps the two could be connected. At the same press conference, police said that there were no surveillance videos of the parking lot to show what had happened to Carissa, although there was video of Penny inside the Sobeys store. The Bridgewater Police, RCMP, and volunteer searchers continued to look for the missing girl. People began to fear the worst. Investigators had also spoken with Carissa's friends and other family at home in Bridgewater and in Shelburne, where her father lived. Her MSN account and Facebook were being monitored, but there was no activity. On February 6th, RCMP divers took to the River near the Bridgewater Mall, searching thoroughly. They came to the conclusion that Carissa Boudreaux was not in the river. Over the week, around 13,000 people had joined Facebook groups dedicated to the search of Carissa, myself included, mm. and details of her disappearance were shared thousands of times. I really, this is really, ugh, I feel very emotional about this one.
1: Yeah, I can imagine, Mike.
0: Yeah, it just, you know, like I say, it's so close to home. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just, yeah anyway we'll we'll carry on on february 9th another mother and her young son were driving along route 331 what locals call the river road in conqueror bank just outside the town limits the little boy told his mom he had to badly uh, badly needed to pee Uh, they pulled off the road into a parking lot that formerly housed the old irving oil building now vacant As the young man went to the riverbank, he noticed what appeared to be a frozen body in the snow close to the river. Terrified, the child ran back to his mother's car and told her what he'd seen. The woman came out and had a look and feared the same thing. As Carissa's uh, disappearance was pretty much the only news story anybody was paying attention to that week, I'm pretty sure that thoughts uh, immediately went to Carissa Boudreaux. Mm -hmm. The woman and her son flagged down another motorist, and police were called right away. At 11.35 a.m., Bridgewater Police Department received a 911 call from a citizen reporting that her nine-year-old son had found a body. The Bridgewater Police were first on scene and immediately secured the area. The RCMP Major Crimes Unit and a detective from Bridgewater Police Department observed the body and determined that it was the body of a young Caucasian female, semi-nude, the body appeared to be that of Carissa Boudreau, based upon facial and physical observations. The next day, police confirmed through the press that it was indeed the body of a white female they had found near the LaHave but a positive identification had not yet been made. Facebook posts galore speculated it had been the body of Carissa Boudreau, but many decided to wait and find out positively yeah. whether, whether or not it was. Yeah. The location of the body is very familiar to me and it hit me, really really hard it was under a kilometer from my family home wow there used to be a wharf and building on the site at which oil tankers would dock in the shadow of the now dismantled Irving oil tanks that stood across the road as kids we used to play there in the area there were a few abandoned cars from the 30s and 40s rusting away and riddled with bullet holes from bored hunters nearby We used to play cops and robbers there, imagining these cars were owned by the likes of Al Capone or someone like some other famous gangster. I'm pretty sure they weren't Capones, as Chicago was half a country away. (laughs) Uh, That would have been a long way to go to hide a few cars. My friends used to climb the oil tanks at night and get chased off by the police, or as we referred to them, the town clowns. Uh, I never climbed the tanks myself. I'm still scared to Elizabeth. After the discovery of the body residents were terrified that there was a very bad person in their midst and kept their kids on a close tether. The corpse found by the river was so frozen that an autopsy could not be performed until February 13th, four days after the discovery. Jeez. Dr. Paul Miller, a dental surgeon, reviewed Carissa Boudreaux's dental charts and casts of her upper and lower teeth. He compared those to the body and everyone's fears were confirmed. This was Carissa Boudreau. Dr. Matt Bowes, Nova Scotia medical examiner, completed the postmortem. The cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. Evidence indicated Carissa had been strangled by way of ligature. There were no other injuries on her body. This was no accident. 12-year-old Carissa Boudreau, a girl described by her family as a homebody and a bit of a loner, had been murdered. She was a typical preteen who liked dancing and singing to her favorite songs and playing video games. Now she was gone and in the worst way possible. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, Bridgewater Police held another press conference and confirmed to the residents of the small town and the rest of the nation that the body they had found was Carissa Boudreaux, and that this missing person case was now a homicide investigation. The very same day, two Bridgewater residents were arrested and held for 24 hours. Question regarding Carissa's murder. They were later released, but the rumors and accusations flew on social media. As in most towns, gossip abounds in Bridgewater. Everyone had a theory. Yeah, I bet. People wanted to know who who did this awful thing, and they wanted to know right now. The police chief, Brent Crowhurst, and Mayor Carol Publicover, who coincidentally had been the vice principal of my elementary school, begged for people to remain calm and told them that investigators believe Carissa's murder to be an isolated incident. At least 20 investigators comprised of local police and uh, RCMP were working tirelessly to solve the case. On February 19th, Carissa's funeral was held. Hundreds of people packed a church in Shelburne County where Carissa's father and grandparents reside. She was laid to rest in a cemetery in the community of Clarks Harbor. A large memorial service was held for Carissa in Bridgewater on February 23rd, 2008. She was being called Bridgewater's daughter. A makeshift memorial of teddy bears and flowers was set up at the site where Carissa was found. The mourners had to leave something there for her. Uh, it came to light that on february eleventh at 230 PM, two days after the discovery of the body on the riverbank, neighbors of Penny Boudreaux and Vernon McCumber heard a loud argument coming from their apartment. The neighbors said Vernon was clearly upset, throwing things around the apartment. He and Penny were stomping back and forth. Vernon told Penny he was leaving her. The neighbors heard water running. They said it sounded like Penny Boudreaux was in the tub. Vernon was saying over and over, Pen, how could you do this? And he was disgusted with her. He was saying, Pen, Pen, come on, speak, Pen. How could you do this? How could you do this? I don't understand. You got me involved. He also said that he wasn't going to help her. Investigators already had concerns regarding Penny Boudreaux's possible involvement in Carissa's murder. A police behavioral analyst had noted Penny Boudreaux's reactions in her two press conferences did not appear genuine. The two individuals arrested on February 14th were indeed Penny Boudreaux and Verna McCumber. Police grilled them for a full day. During their time in local holding cells, police employed a controversial investigative technique called Mr. Big from Wikipedia. I hate using Wikipedia, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Mr. Big, sometimes known as the Canadian technique, is a covert investigation procedure used by undercover police to elicit confessions from suspects in cold cases, usually murder Police officers create a fictitious criminal organization, then seduce the suspect into joining it. They build a relationship with the suspect, gain his confidence, and then enlist his help in a succession of criminal acts, for example, credit card scams, selling guns. Once the suspect has become enmeshed in the criminal gang, he is persuaded to divulge information about the specific crime under investigation. The Mr. Big Technique has come under a lot of fire recently after two alleged terror suspects in B.C. were acquitted as courts felt they were entrapped into making and placing bombs at the provincial legislature in Victoria, doing something they may never have done without police involvement. As well, the Mr. Big Technique had been uh, highlighted in the coverage of the Raffae family murders in Washington State in 1994. The suspects fled to Canada where U.S. authorities partnered with the RCMP to obtain confessions from Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay. Some say they used the Mr. Big technique to coerce these guys, and that led to their confessions and ultimately to their conviction. The Netflix show called The Confession Tapes covers the case in detail. As well, the podcast True Crime Garage recently did an excellent two-part episode on the murders and subsequent investigations. No admissions to Carissa's murder were obtained at the time of the Valentine's Day arrest, but Verna McCumber and the undercover operator made a bit of a connection, I guess a love connection or whatever, and promised to catch up more on the outside. Police released the pair without charges. Although investigators were unable to clear Boudreaux and McCumber, they did not have enough to hold them further. They remained suspects in the case. As well, police executed several search warrants related to the case. One was at the Jubilee apartment where Boudreaux and McCumber lived with Carissa. Neighbors also said that police removed Ms. Boudreaux's car, the red neon she had been driving the night of Carissa's disappearance. Almost halfway between my parents' house and the Jubilee apartments is the local swimming pool I used to haunt almost daily as a kid in the summertime. The pool was just up through the woods behind our house and past the museum through the park. It was so close that our cat, a tabby named Frisky, used to crawl under the fence and hang out watching people swim. She was like the swim team mascot of the successful Bridgewater Barracudas. Uh, My sister swam for them throughout her childhood and into her teens. Frisky even showed up in a few Barracudas team photos in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy cat. On February 25th, 2008, a local resident was at the playground right next to the pool He checked a garbage can there for recyclables and saw what he thought to be a pink sandal. He returned home and his fiancée, and he had a little bit of a discussion about what he'd seen. Having been interested in the Boudreaux case, the woman remembered that Carissa had been wearing pink Crocs. The two returned to the bin and found it was a pink Croc. They called police, who arrived, took photos, and retrieved a left size 8 pink Croc, a black hoodie, and a black vest. The citizen said these items had not been in the bin when he checked a month prior. The crock matched the right one found on William Hebb Road. DNA evidence would later prove conclusively that the items belonged to Carissa Boudreaux. but this evidence was holdback evidence to weed out false confessions and hopefully identify a killer. On the same day, February twenty-fifth, two 2008, Vernon McCumber again met with the man he'd met in a lockup on Valentine's Day, who, unknown to him, was an undercover cop. The operative was wired for sound, and a conversation between he and McCumber was recorded, in which he offered Vernon some easy work for his crime syndicate. In Canada, it's not illegal uh, for you to record conversations you're having with others, even if the other person hasn't consented. These recordings can be used as evidence in legal proceedings, but you cannot record a conversation you're not participating in without legal authorization. So they could record Vern to their heart's content as long as one of them was the one who was doing the recording. Interesting. Yep. Over the ensuing weeks, the RCMP undercover operator met with McCumber numerous times involving Vernon in various small crimes, thus gathering his trust, the typical Mr. Big technique. Mm -hmm. On April 1st, 2008, Penny and Vernon left the Jubilee Apartments and moved to Halifax. Vernon had left his job in Bridgewater due to the public investigation and his inability to bear the rumors about his involvement in Carissa's murder, which were flying throughout the small town. At a meeting with the undercover operator on April 16, 2008, Vernon finally started talking a bit about Carissa Boudreaux. He told the operator he had nothing to do with Carissa's disappearance or her murder. He claimed he'd been asleep when Penny and Carissa left. He went on to tell the operator that he thought Penny Boudreaux was responsible for Carissa's death and that he only stayed with her to keep her close so she would not point the finger at him for the crime. Ugh, class. Mm -hmm. On May 3rd, the undercover operators told Vernon they needed the help of a female for a job and suggested Penny Boudreaux. They asked him to run it by her to see if she was interested. Penny immediately became involved in the work for the operators, not suspecting that they were actually cops as Vernon had been involved with them for months. So again, like here we are doing that Mr. Big thing, they gain your trust completely and then get you to do stuff.
1: Yeah, it's an effective but um, kind of questionable a, yeah uh, yeah tactic but yep. yeah
0: it's interesting. I guess if somebody's not not a bad person they may not get involved at all.
1: Yeah it it's 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 controversial. Yeah. The uh, the tactic.
0: Yep. On May eighth, two thousand eight, on the three month anniversary of the Discovery discovery of carissa boudreaux's body local media outlets were reporting that dna evidence was assisting police in their search for carissa's murder penny boudreaux was visibly upset in her subsequent meetings with the undercover police worrying about what cops knew (laughs) and the fact that uh, her place of work had been revealed in the news reports really bothered her little did she know she was already talking with the cops (laughs) but i mean I have I, I mentioned to you when we were going over this before how I feel like maybe they released that to put the pressure on her, you know, to maybe maybe upset her a little bit and get her talking.
1: Oh, I have no doubt. It's, it's a very, very smart uh, strategic tactic a lot of uh, law enforcement will use, especially when you've got somebody in, embedded in the social circle of the said criminal. Yeah. Uh, when you – put something in the media like that, the criminal will often react, panic, uh, start watching their back. And so if you have somebody who can be there and observing it, it, it's a brilliant, brilliant tactic.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, uh, on May 14th, 2008, Penny Boudreaux met with the undercover operators again. She made a comment this time that she wished the police exhibit vault would burn down or blow up. I wonder why she did that. Hmm. No, just... uh Emotion. Yeah. Based on evidence to this point, on June second, two thousand eight, investigators obtained permission to intercept Penny Boudreaux's private communication for sixty days. This meant police could tap Penny's phone and possibly intercept email and social media communications, but it's not been made public how much they did. Hmm. On June 11, 2008, Penny met with yet another undercover operator who said he had connections and was capable of making her problem disappear. This man claimed to be the head of the crime syndicate that she and Vernon had been working for, so this was Mr. Big. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. He really needed to know that she was trustworthy prior to going ahead and assisting her. She had to tell him the whole story about what happened with Carissa. What do you think she did?
1: Oh, I think she goes
0: along with it. Yeah? Yeah. Penny told the undercover investigator the following, and this is all taken from the statement of facts from records at Penny Boudreau's trial. So you can see where this is going. Mm. Note, uh, this is actually going to be kind of tough for me to read. Uh, the events that we are about to describe are extremely graphic and listener discretion is again strongly advised. I'm reading kind of verbatim from the Statement of Facts and uh,
1: – It's heavy.
0: It's pretty heavy. So here goes nothing. Penny Boudreau and Verna McCumber were having issues because of Carissa. McCumber actually gave her an ultimatum to either pick him or Carissa. Boudreau states that Verna McCumber had nothing to do with the murder and that it was she who strangled Carissa. Boudreau said it was Sunday, January 27, 2008, the day she killed Carissa. Boudreau said she and Carissa went out for a drive around 3 or 4 p.m. They drove for a couple hours to Lunenburg and back and were talking. She felt things got a little out of hand and both of them were angry. Boudreau said she did what she had to. Boudreau drove to the Sobeys parking lot around 5 30 p.m. and went in to get some juice and bacon. Carissa was still in her vehicle alive. She called McCumber to tell him that Carissa was not in the car when she came out of the Sobeys. She left a message on the phone. She returned to her car, put the groceries in the trunk. While she did this, she grabbed a piece of beige twine and put it in her pocket as she knew she had to do away with her. Carissa kept wanting to get out of the car, so Boudreau waited until it was dark and drove to William Hebb Road and told Carissa that if she wanted to get out, then to get out. Boudreau said she couldn't let her go back and tell people what a horrible mom she was. Boudreau said they both got out of the car and it was snowy, dark night. Boudreau went to grab her, but it was slippery, so she pushed slash tackled her and Carissa fell on her back. The only thing Carissa said to her was, Mommy, don't. Boudreaux said that Carissa was scared. Boudreaux used her knee on Carissa's chest to pin her down. Carissa's hands were under her, so she couldn't move her hands, and Boudreaux used her knees to pin her down so she couldn't fight back. Boudreaux was face-to-face with her. Boudreaux wrapped the rope around her hands and put the rope around Carissa's neck and pulled in a crisscross motion with all her strength until she could no longer feel her breathing. Throughout all of this, Boudreaux said she could feel Carissa trying to move her hands and that they were digging into the ground. Carissa's eyes were bulging, her tongue was stuck between her teeth and foam slash drool was coming from her mouth and she could hear her heaving for air. Boudreaux said that when there was no more breathing, she dragged Carissa's body and put her in the passenger seat of the vehicle in mostly a heap on the floor, then drove to Bridgewater to decide what to do next. Boudreaux placed the twine in an empty Tim Hortons cup, which she then threw into the garbage can at Tim Hortons on High Street. Boudreaux drove on King Street past Pendleton's store to the turnoff spot. She parked the car, turned it and the lights off, and dragged Carissa's body out of the car using her blue jeans as leverage. Carissa's pants, pink underwear, and striped socks came off as she was dragging Carissa to the bank's edge. Boudreaux felt this would make people think Carissa had been sexually assaulted. Boudreaux stated that Carissa's hoodie and vest came off and she was just left wearing her T-shirt with one pant leg in her jeans. Boudreaux then rolled her over the edge of the bank Knowing that the weather was calling for lots of snow and that she wouldn't be found for a while, Carissa landed amongst trees and didn't hit the river. Boudreaux got back in her car, took the hoodie, vest, crock, and threw them in the garbage can at the Bridgewater swimming pool. She by then realized she only had one crock. Boudreaux went home around 7 to 7.30 and told McCumber that Carissa was missing. She called police around 8. She called family, friends, and teachers to check with them. Boudreaux said she would do anything for Vernon, and the thought of losing him was harder than the thought of losing her daughter. So I hear you sighing over there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've I've got two young daughters, eight, well, almost eight and ten. Yeah. And so anything that has to do. Any story that has to do with children has, a, has quite the impact on me. Yeah. Uh, well, me too, and I don't even have. For sure. Place. For sure. Uh, the the rage that is inside me right now, like I'm over here twitching. My yeah. feet are twitching. Uh, yeah. I just like, yeah, uh, I'm I'm full of rage and anger. Uh, yeah. I, I can't. It's the the innocence of a child. I, I don't care how much turmoil is in a relationship. No, no, no. Uh, Yeah, and and her apparent lack of remorse immediately after, thinking about how, oh, this will look good, like she was sexually assaulted and stuff. That's not – I'm not detecting any remorse. I just – I I despise this lady right now. I despise her.
0: Yeah, well, as a lot of others do.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So – uh, Penny physically reenacted the murder of her daughter for the undercover operators and even wrote the whole statement out longhand with pen and paper. I'm wondering if like did she really think that they were going to blow up the police evidentiary locker or did did she actually suspect that these were cops? You know and maybe she was just so relieved it getting you know maybe a part of her new
1: i i think that yeah i think i think you're you're spot on i think it's probably a combination of both i think she uh uh definitely felt she needed to get this off the chest off her chest and uh while in that moment not caring if it would lead to whatever arrest yeah,
0: yeah. she then agreed to travel back to bridgewater with these men and led them to william Hebb road where the first crock was found that was where she'd murdered Carissa, again reenacting and recounting the murder for her operatives. She took them to the turn in, uh, on the old Irving Oil property where she'd dumped Carissa's body, again reenacting what happened there. She told the undercover operators that she had been considering the murder for a few days prior to actually getting up the courage to act. It was premeditated. Upon returning to Halifax, the undercover operators asked Penny for the clothing she wore on the night of the murder. They told her it was so they could dispose of the evidence, but they were actually collecting it. Penny provided it to them. On the morning of June 14, 2008, Penny Boudreaux was arrested and questioned by the RCMP, but clammed up initially. In the afternoon... They played portions of the recordings they had made over the weeks of their sting operation, focusing on the Penny confessions uh, to the undercover officers on the 11th. Penny cratered and confirmed what she had already admitted was true. She wrote another official statement outlining her actions on the night of January 27, 2008, admitting, admitting... oh. I'm having trouble even saying it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, She's admitting to murdering her own daughter, Carissa.
1: Yeah, we did. We did say this was heavy.
0: Yeah. Penny also hand-wrote a letter to her murdered child expressing her feelings about having committed the crime. I don't know what... Did the police initiate that? Do you know what I mean? Like, why why would they want her to do that? Well,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, I, I... I speaking from experience in therapy, it is often uh, suggested to write a uh, letter to whomever may have traumatized you, and so that would be a traumatizing event. So it, it could have been, uh, you know, mentioned through therapy at that time i don't know it, it it could have just been through the cops i don't i but don't this, i don't this get this f- at
0: the time when the police were interviewing her
1: yeah i i, I don't get the feeling that uh she um she took it upon up herself her, to feel it. remorseful
0: no no or, or maybe it was a play you know don't don't uh put me in jail forever uh, it
1: could be I, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, the police held another conference press conference that day and let the public know that an arrest had been made. Here's the audio of the RCMP uh, Superintendent Blair McKnight.
1: 34-year-old Penny Patricia Boudreau was arrested on Friday, June 13th in Halifax. She will answer to the charge of first-degree murder on Monday, June 16th at Bridgewater Provincial Court.
0: On January 27, 2009... While the Crown and Penny Boudreaux's attorney were planning for her murder trial, just a few days later, a crowd of 200 people gathered in Shipyard's Landing just down the road from the site where Carissa's body was found. They held a candlelight vigil to commemorate the first anniversary of Carissa's murder. On January 30th, 2009, Penny Boudreaux pled guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder. Although she had planned the crime, prosecutors agreed with the defense attorneys that a lengthy trial would put the family and the community through even more grief, and no one wanted that. The presiding judge stated, The guilty plea is a public expression of responsibility for taking the life of another human being. In doing so, she has saved the considerable state resources, but more importantly she has prevented further suffering to the community and most importantly suffering to Carissa's true family and friends i say true family because surely penny boudreau you can never call yourself mother in conjunction with carissa's name again and the words mommy don't from a trusting and loving carissa are there to haunt you for the rest of your natural life it's powerful
1: and uh, really really Uh, Accurate in my opinion
0: Yep Penny was sentenced to life in prison Which in Canada means 25 years As the crime was so heinous The eligibility for parole Was set to no less than 20 years Too short in my opinion
1: Yes, mine as well Yep
0: Paul Scoville, one of the Crown Attorneys Gave a brief statement to reporters Outside the court About some of the facts of the case Most chilling was the following she was she was uh, alive and, and well
1: when she was at the uh, the parking lot at Sobeys and when uh, Miss Boudreaux made the call to Mr. McCumber and reported her missing. She was still in the car, still alive, and uh, it was from there uh, at the Sobeys that she left, took her to the Williams Head Road, and
0: strangled her. Penny's father, Paul Boudreaux, also gave a statement that day. I can't call anything other than a senseless act. I mean, the options were there, and... You know, for for a parent to just help make that decision, I still can't comprehend it. She had many options. There was many people around her that would have gladly gladly, you know. Had I known this was going to happen, I
1: would never ever let her go back. But I mean, what parent's going to try to you know say no? You can't go back and see your mother.
0: The case that had horrified my hometown was over. But Carissa's memory lived on. For at least five years after Carissa's death, the older sister of a good friend of mine organized an annual pet food drive to be held on the anniversary of Carissa's murder. Carissa had loved animals and wanted to be a veterinarian one day. I'm not sure this pet food drive is still going on. Yeah, this was a a tough one for me, uh, having grown up within a kilometer of the whole event, you know, the murder, uh, where the body was found, um... Wow. Yeah.
1: It it must do some uh, uh, mess with your head a bit because you have such positive memories of a lot of these places from growing up. And and now you connect those places to uh, a murder. this horrible crime. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: A murder where a a mother killed her child.
1: Which just – as I talked about earlier, these are the things that just set me off. Like it's – as a parent and and I'm sure – you know, not even having children yourself. You can – still recognize how well for sure and how, how evil yeah. it is to kill especially your own child
0: well yeah and the fact that it happened in in my little tiny town of eighty yeah. five hundred people you know uh it really affected some people there mm-hmm. uh, i know quite badly you know i remember having facebook conversations with some of the folks who are parents there and, and they were so upset mm-hmm. it was uh it was a tough time for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's not the, it's not the first or last time anything kind of weird has happened near my parents' place. Um, I remember one story. Uh, the police had to, uh, well, essentially they chased a guy up to the same road, the William Hebb Road, where Carissa was murdered. So they, they, the police were chasing this guy past mom and dad's place and up up into the there's like a quarry up in there and they had a gun gun battle with this guy up there oh geez yeah my parents heard you know the shooting and all jeez oh, craziness yeah and uh, obviously that guy didn't get out of there alive he was uh suicide by cop i guess
1: yeah i think when you get involved in a gunfight with the police you, yeah there's an expectation that you're not going to make it out alive
0: yeah so that's some dark poutine from my very little hometown <laughs> Jeez. yeah yeah there's another there 's another couple of cases we we might cover from that area there was a, I told you earlier, Scott, that there was a a, a couple, the Humes, who were found uh, in their house was was on fire, and people had thought at first these people had died of smoke inhalation, but it turned out later that they'd been shot, and the house was set on fire to cover up the murder mm. uh, the double murders and this was in uh, in Spring, just across the river from Bridgewater. Uh, mm down toward riverport but uh that murder those murders were never solved um the rcmp even put out another call for you know witnesses or whatever they were looking for people to try to help solve it so mm. yeah just recently Jeez, and that was in 88 so
1: so you were like
0: uh 38 uh, no i was 19 <laughs> yeah, 38 19 uh, split in yeah If you'd like to learn more about this and other episodes of Dark Poutine, check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com. If you have any story ideas, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tell your friends about us. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory. And if you're so inclined, it would be awesome if you left a five-star review and comments on iTunes. Every little bit helps.
1: Do it Don't, or I come and get you. Why Why do you keep saying that? It's I just, just, I'm trying to scare – it's my ploy to get us five stars.
0: But the content is scary enough. OK. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple like Scott. Boo.